You're listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. Did you know that it's not only brands who have sustainability departments? Many manufacturers have sustainability departments too. This week, we are so fortunate to talk to Matthew Gunther, the Senior Environmental Sustainability Manager for an Asia-based apparel manufacturer. Matthew has been based in Asia for about 10 years, and his background is in environmental policy and science. Prior to working on the supplier side, Matthew worked for a large retailer, also within their sustainability department. We are so lucky to benefit from the rich insight that comes from his having worked in different positions within the fashion supply chain. So what does someone leading sustainability for a manufacturer actually do? The manufacturer for which Matthew works has numerous production facilities. He shares how his strategy has shifted away from prescriptive top-down approaches in favor of giving production facilities ownership over their own sustainability stories. Throughout season one of this podcast, we've repeatedly heard about suppliers leading the push for sustainability and trying to convince brands to change their behavior. The manufacturer for which Matthew works is no exception. A big part of Matthew's job is educating customers brands about what sustainability means. He shares the challenges of educating marketing departments about the technical, mundane, and unglamorous sides of sustainability. On the one hand, Matthew's role as a distributor of sustainability knowledge from the bottom up is a critical piece of better educating sustainability professionals, and by extension, consumers. But having brands tell the story of their supply chain also reinforces the narrative that brands are the ultimate owners of what happens in sustainability, incentivizing sustainability models focused on surveillance and control. So how do we move away from sustainability models focused on surveillance? Have we industrialized the practice of sustainability? Matthew shares how resilience thinking has shaped his view of what a more effective model for sustainability might look like. Ecological resilience, as defined in a 2004 article in Ecology and Society by Holling, Carpenter, and Kinzig, is the capacity of a system to absorb disturbance and reorganize while undergoing change so as to still retain essentially the same function, structure, identity, and feedbacks. How can we do a better job of sharing the narrative, delineating who is responsible for what, and become more resilient? If you are on Instagram, please follow us to help us grow the conversation at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up our website on www.manufacturedpodcast.com to receive our news and updates. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. Hi, Matthew. Welcome to Manufactured. So tell us a little bit about what you do. You are based in Asia and work for a manufacturer in their sustainability department. What does that actually mean? Uh, so I'm working as the senior environmental sustainability manager. Um, the first part of that really encompasses just looking after our factory's environmental management systems as well as their performance. 
So we collect data from the factories. Uh, uh, we implement our environmental management system with them. We kind of do checks just to make sure that it's being carried out, uh, you know, uh, according to you know our corporate standard. Um, and you know, we we also set targets for the factories along with them. So we have those discussions on how to improve uh, on our various KPIs for greenhouse gas emissions, water. Uh, intensity usage, our waste. Um, and, you know, we also work with them on different certifications. Uh, so, you know, whether that's going after organic cotton certifications like GOTS or OCS, um, as well as, you know, we recently achieved Blue Sign System Partner. Uh, so that was a great achievement for us. And for our listeners who want to learn more about GOTS, about Blue Sign System Partner, OCS, and accreditations like this, we'll put some links in the show notes. So please be sure to check those out. That's kind of like on the factory side. Um, the other aspect of my role then is evolved a little bit more into uh, working with our sales and our sourcing teams on sustainable material and sustainable products and what that really means, what is sustainable. Um, and, and, and trying to come out with some types of definitions, uh, which, you know, sustainability, uh, I, I, I try to, you know, in our company, we try to adhere to that, you know, that Brundtland uh, Commission definition of, you know, meeting the needs of the present without compromising the needs of the future generations, which is a very broad and kind of hard way to, uh, uh, you know, definition to actually uh, uh, you know, implement in a way uh, because it's supposed to be inclusive. It's supposed to take care of balances of the social and economic and environmental needs of all the generations and the people on this planet. And I also try to emphasize that we are trying to do like a human, you know, centric approach. Um, and so, so when we're thinking about you know our products and and things like that, we you know it's good to talk about the environmental impacts and and what and what's happening, but it has to be made relevant for mm-hmm. you know the the our consumers or our customers or our customers customers you know that the end consumer so really trying to bring things back down so there's a lot of there's a lot of education that i've really uh realized that needs to happen and so we talk about sustainability 101 <laughs> on the one hand i think especially for people who are listening who aren't within the industry People maybe don't realize that there are these large manufacturers and that you can have a headquarters who and that you could have somebody whose job it is to actually work with multiple factories and that your work that that's, you know, that you're not you're employed by a manufacturer, but you're not in a factory and um, that you're working with counterparts who are on and that each of them has, you know, different things that they're doing to become more sustainable based on the kind of production that they're doing. I'm also really interested in this education stuff because like, again, for people who maybe aren't within the industry or might be wondering, well, you're a manufacturer, who are you communicating to, you know? And, and, um, and I think that's a really interesting place to dig a little bit deeper too, is yeah. to like, who are you educating and why? So when I, when I first kind of joined, uh, you know, the company, we, the focus on sustainability or environmental sustainability or just, you know, social and our impacts is very just within our four walls. Um, and I think it took, you know, a journey of, you know, 10 plus years to really kind of solidify that foundation. So the, then the training was geared towards the factories, 
but it was very much focused on your factory stakeholders. So you have your facility managers who are managing energy and water uh, and your wastewater as well as, you know, then you have different people who are managing your waste. It's not just one person in a factory because there you have your, you know, industrial waste and then you have your kind of domestic waste and that ends up falling under. So you have these various stakeholders and, um, you know, within a factory and that's where a lot of the education started, but the, it was very geared towards production and just kind of like, well, what do I need to do? Like steps, um, you know, what, what, like what data do I need to collect? Just tell me, give me like a process. I need to separate this from, you know, this waste from that waste. Tell me what data I need to collect and what meters I need to collect it from. And so it was very, you know, just trying to, you know, tell them exactly what to do. And I think it was very prescriptive. And what I want to see actually happening a little bit, more is we've, we, we're still doing that, but then our sales team didn't really understand what, why we we're doing that in the factory. Our, our, our sourcing teams didn't really understand. Like they didn't understand that we knew what they knew. We had an environmental management system when we were doing this stuff, but they didn't really understand, well, the, the work behind it, the K, they, didn't, they don't understand what the KPIs actually mean. What is an energy intensity? Uh, metric. And so when you when they come to us and say, oh, well, can you give us some updates on the factories uh, so we can present to our customers? They it, it ended up being that they couldn't really explain it. Like we still had to kind of explain, you know, a little bit to to the customers what, what that is. Um, and and and, and by customers, yeah. you mean the brands that you're yeah, like our brands. So, so their interest. So, our brands are interested. Like, well, what sustainability initiatives are you doing? Um, and I think our sales team wanted to hear very, uh, you know, sexy things that like we're installing solar panels or you know we're putting in, <laughs> we're planting trees. Like they wanted to see something very visible. When actually a lot of the work on sustainability is very uh, minutia. It's in the details, and it's just every day you know, collecting the data and analyzing it. And, and sometimes like they don't know how to speak about that. Mm. Um, and I think that's trying to get our, our sales teams to be able to speak about the every day that we do. That's what makes, you know, our company, you know, the manufacturing, like a, a, a more sustainable manufacturer. It's, it's not these big, like showy, flashy, you know, things, but kind of the everyday you know, work in the grind to some extent. Everyday work is not sexy at all in the marketing oriented. It's uh, it's much less sexy than saying, "Oh, we saved uh, this many wheels or trees," or you know, it's it's mostly it's quite dry, I believe, for marketing oriented. It, it is absolutely, and I. But I'm trying to I'm trying to make it a little bit more sexy and just trying to you know give them sound bites to be able to talk to a little bit, but you know, it's good. It's one thing for them to memorize the sound bite, but it's another thing for them to understand the sound bite. Cause then they can talk a little bit more about it on, on, on to, to the customers and about what we're trying to accomplish and what we're doing. So you have a marketing team you've worked, you're working on part of your role is sort of educating your marketing team so that they're better able to communicate about the various sustainability initiatives that the factories are taking on. But um, you would think that your customers are pretty educated about what sustainability 
requires and that you might maybe some people would expect that the education flow is going the other way around hmm. yeah i mean that's kind of interesting um I think, you know, different brands are at different levels of their own sustainability journey. Um, so you, you do have to adapt um, how you talk to the brands and, and try to meet where their thinking is at. And, and a lot of times for uh, many of our customers, uh, they're not very advanced. Uh, and so we actually need to present sustainability to them. Like, why is what we do on an everyday basis a value add to the products that we are, you know, selling you. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I think that's, 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 I think a little bit of a challenge and, you know, I've, I've listened to some of your previous podcasts and, you know, though always the push, you know, for like, you know, how to drive down price. Um, and, I, I always try to say there's always that lowest common denominator where they're always going to push price. And so I try to tell, you know, our sales team, do not talk about necessarily the uh, savings of like energy, because then a lot of times in people's minds that, oh, that's a cost savings. So that means you can make right. your product cheaper, right? Hmm. I, I rather you have to kind of talk about the impact. And so that becomes the greenhouse gas emissions um, or, you know, the less amount of our, our management of wastewater, for example, uh, and, and how we're and, and how we're managing our discharge uh, and making sure that we're meeting, you know, high, you know, industry standards, um, you know, international industry standards. So that's kind of like the value add of like working with us is that you can be kind of it's 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 we're value we add to that that risk management, um, but it's not that we're trying to save like the money it's it's we're saving the impact um and i think that's a and are your customers responsive to that <laughs> does it yet. work this, like i said this is, this is <laughs> I, think, I don't know yet we're, we're trying this uh i think this is kind of the new approach that we're trying to bring out because we would like to, i mean our company believes that the future is on uh a you know, sustainability is, is the future. We're going to have a lot more brands um, asking about that. And, you know, we want to be at the forefront of this conversation, um, but we can't have that. I, I, I guess we just can't really have that lowest common denominator, like that push where it's like, oh, sustainability is going to save us money. No, sustainability is uh, saving the impact and, and uh, either to the environment or on the workers. Yeah, I think there's um people are quick when they make the case for sustainability like to say things like oh sustainability is good for the environment and it makes business sense too. And that might be the case, but I feel it's kind of incomplete and it's maybe not always true uh or the truth is a little bit more nuanced and um it really depends how, you know, the are you taking a short-term view, a long-term view, what, you know, how, and how you really evaluate or measure success, uh, whether financial or in terms of your environmental impact? And it's a very good uh, strategy. It reversed the narrative because before around sustainability, the narrative or the way we approach it, it's always like uh, it can improve efficiency, can save so much cost, can save water, save electricity, and that is directly linked to saving, you know, cost. But this mm. narrative is more like a, a core 
on their responsibilities, the sense of responsibility, because we are manufacturing things. Brand is where brands are purchasing, let's say, or placing order to products. So together we are making products and making products has an impact on environment. So what's your uh, sense of responsibility to the environment, to social, to everything we just talk about. So mm. by using this approach, I feel we draw attention from cost saving to, as you said, impact saving or impact improving. Yes. Impact less, have the yes. same quality of product, but impact less. So in this way, I think the attention just switched. It's a yeah. very good approach. And and we you know if you talk in this is it's kind of like we talk about the internalization of externalities. And for our listeners who maybe haven't heard this term or this expression before, internalizing the externality means shifting the burden or or costs from a negative externality like pollution or wastewater or um, even labor rights abuses from outside to inside. So. For example, a simple example is in the case of pollution, instead of placing the burden for pollution on the people who are breathing the polluted air, a government might place a tax on the people who are doing the polluting. So it shifts the burden, the cost of higher pollution from outside to the company who's actually responsible for doing it. And I feel trying to you know, shift this narrative is, is trying to bring in, internalize some of that uh, externalities of, you know, with our impact, uh, you know, to society, but trying to say, well, no, this is the value add and the product. So by, uh, you know, paying for this product, and I'm not saying it's going to be a more costly product, but just the fact that you're, you know, working with uh, manufacturers uh, that are thinking about this and responsibility that you are, you know, ha- ha- you, you're buying a value product, a value for money in, in terms of, of the product that you buy. So this, I think, is an interesting point because we've heard it now, you know, in terms of the role of the su- suppliers in driving sustainability-related conversations. We've heard it from you. We've heard it from Pete in our episode uh, with uh, where he talks about his relationship with Luxottica and the different initiatives he tried to pr- push for from a from a sustainability perspective. We also heard it from Michaela when uh, she talks about denim and trying to propose. She worked for a garment factory in Bangladesh and she's trying to propose more sustainable denim options to brands. So. On the one hand, throughout this podcast, we've seen over and over suppliers kind of taking the lead in this conversation. But in your experience, what's the perception of suppliers' role in this conversation within, uh, you know, within within the industry, within sustainability focused spaces? Yeah, that's 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 a great question, and I think you know even. You know, and, and, and this is something that I've seen, not just in my role, in my current role with a manufacturer, but when I was working previously, you know, on the brand side for a home, home furnishing retailer, um, it's it's this perception that we need to have surveillance of the uh, supply chain and take ownership of what's happening there. And I think that's the perception that maybe consumers or NGOs uh uh, you know, give to the brands a little bit um, because I think in a previous, you know, podcast you kind of say that you know uh, 
your that brands kind of work as this gateway um, mm-hmm. to manufacturers. Yeah, the gatekeeper. Yeah, they're like the gatekeeper, and that seems to be the perception. But by having that narrative, it's the I, I feel like brands take this like ownership that we have to control the sustainability impacts in our supply chain, even though we don't own the supply chain. They don't own any of the manufacturers in the supply chain, you know, and they and there's bear- a very good reason for that too. Well, <laughs> right, and I mean, there's, I mean, we're all specialists, right? That's the kind of economic system we worked in. We're mm-hmm. we're all specializing in our uh, specific areas, and a lot of times the specialization for brands is marketing. But then right. you try they they try to bring that you know say kind of like that. Uh, well, how do we market ourselves better on this? Well, we need surveillance to be able to show numbers and impact and 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 ends up you know in our conversations and with the brands, it's just they all then say, okay, well, we're going to have surveillance, so we have audits. We're going to come in and evaluate you on your environmental or social performance, and every brand has the same audit, and there's no. And so we, and, and they won't accept necessarily these, their, their shared audits. Uh, you know, I think that's a, another challenge as, at least for manufacturers, because we spend our times just fulfilling audits without necessarily thinking about the sustainability. And so we just say, well, you have your very specific requirements. What incentive do I have as a manufacturer to, you know, really think about sustainability on my own? And I think that's caused a little bit of a shift in the thinking for some manufacturers just to say, well, I'm just going to wait for my brands to tell me what to do because, you know, if I do my own thing, some of them may not accept what I'm doing anyways. And I think that's a really Right. And then I'll have thing. to do it. I'll have to do twice, put in twice, twice the work. Twice the work. Yeah. Three times the work. Or, four times the And work. my margins are already tight and it's not like I'm rolling in lots of extra money to be able to, Correct. to, to do that. Or the cost inputted a lot, but the efforts were will not be appreciated. Then. Yeah, exactly. The, and then the effort isn't appreciated. So, uh, I, 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 I would, I would like to see, you know, for for that narrative to shift a bit because I, I having the brands tell the story of their supply chain is just giving making the narrative that the brands are the ultimate you know owners of what happens in this in sustainability mm-hmm. and to achieve what we need to do it's not just brands they're a very small piece in actually the puzzle they you know there's there's massive supply change that employ huge numbers of people across Vast communities. I mean, I think there was there was one statistic that from the GFA that fashion, like the global fashion industry, and, and employs one in six people in the world. That's massive. It reminds me of this quote by um, uh, the Nigerian author Chimamanda Adichie, who says, "It's um, power is the ability not just to tell the story of another person, but to make it the definitive story of that person." And I think that kind of speaks to what you're describing too, because it's like you said, brands are sort of taking 
ownership of the narratives of their supply chain and um and for so long especially within sustainability spaces that narrative has been sweatshops that narrative has been you know there there are certainly is a need to tell those stories, but in the way that they're framed, it's just like, it doesn't really, it obscures the asymmetrical power relationships between brands and suppliers. And it, I think um, it's sort of used as a way to deflect inward critical, inward reflection about how their own behavior might have and their own choices and way of doing business might have contributed to some of these things. And then meanwhile, all these other stories, like some of the ones we've just discussed about suppliers taking a lead and trying to figure out how to do things, being demotivated to do so because, you know, they don't, it's, it's, it might not be accepted. I mean, that's, it's sad, right? Well, it's, it's very sad. And we, you know, our company, uh, you know, some of our factories achieved uh, LEED certification. Um, you know, our, our CEO publicly spoke about that. And if he could change something 10 years ago, he would have not gone after LEED certification for his factories because the customers didn't care. And so there's been this... Wait, so he went for LEED certification before before his customers asked him to? Is that what you said? Oh, mean? yes. Oh, yeah. So LEED yeah. certification is that is that building yeah. energy and environmental mm -hmm. design. Um, certification mm -hmm. and and you know our factories went for it like we you know we we built uh, a new factory um, complete uh, with lead certification but you know in the end it doesn't seem that our customers like they're like oh that's great that's nice to have congratulations and but the conversation then actually becomes more you know well what kind of, once again it's product focused so a lot of the what's happened in in you know the sustainability shift is you know, there's doesn't seem to be this value add and say, you know, having a comprehensive, you know, management systems to look after your sustainability impacts, which is a very, you know, continuous learning and iterative process, um, which takes up quite a bit of, you know, a manufacturer's time to be able to achieve. But in the end, it's about the product and what can you, uh, you know, claim about the product. So a lot of, you know, brands are now saying, well, what kind of sustainable product can you ask mm. offer and some of them don't even know what that means they're just like well what can you do for us in sustainability well a lot what do, what do you <laughs> like to try to go for um but then in the end they you know we we present some options and you know you know we sometimes it's about price sometimes it's about um, you know, it, you know, they don't really understand the story or the narrative. And so they don't know how to market it. So now mm. it comes back to that education piece where there's a big gap between from just people and the brands and consumers and understanding the long-term viability of what we're, of what sustainability means and, and a lot of people say, well, what's the, the pure definition? And I, I keep going back to this and it's like, it's not necessarily a pure definition. Like our, we'll never stop pursuing sustainability, but it's the human drive to better our, our world on this planet. And of course there's going to be different visions, but that's okay. Mm. As long as we kind of come to the idea that, you know, sustainability is about 
humans and thriving on this planet and understanding what helped make humans thrive. That it has. But to then, do what with- do we do? What do we do with like with greenwashing and consumer education? Because a lot of times, people are like people that I talk to are like, "Oh, well, that would be great. Like, let's have people do things in in different ways based on what makes sense for them and based on their context." But then, how do you? Like for the consumer who's sitting in the United States or in Europe and wants to shop more sustainably, but, you know, uh, is sort of lacking the tools for evaluating what is or isn't sustainable. How do you empower that consumer to then put the right kind of pressure on the companies that they shop from? Uh, it's it's a great question <laughs> because what unfortunately you see in the system that we've built and um, so I, I, I kind of go back to this idea of are, sometimes are we industrializing sustainability? And mm. what I mean by that is you have all of these certifications or, you know, claiming to some type of sustainable attribute to products, but these are competing, they're operating in a uh, competitive marketplace. And right. And when when you put, you know, competition into this world of sustainability, you begin a narrow drive for specific standards or specific ways to pursue sustainability, which may not take into consideration local context in certain areas. It doesn't allow the innovation of different ideas. Uh, and so for me, it, it, it's not really a resilient, like a resilient way of a mindset, resilient mindset. And yeah. So let's talk about that. I mean, how do you describe resilience thinking in, in simple terms? So I think we talk about in many supply chains, the concept of efficiency. And efficiency is in a way assuming that things are going to happen the same way all the time. You're going to have this flow of information, this flow of material, and it's not really going to get interrupted. So you just are trying to maximize and make it more efficient, that flow of exchange of ideas, flow of exchange of information or materials across um, you know, the, you know, the network. Because it's not the network's not really going to change. Mm-hmm. But resilience thinking kind of says, well, That's not necessarily the case. Shocks happen to the system, and you need to be somewhat flexible to absorb those shocks. And a perfectly efficient system, I don't think, is actually very resilient. So I think there is a trade-off between efficiency and resilience, and I think that's part of the the struggle uh, when we talk about you know, our, our, our current, you know, economic system and this drive for like cost reduction through efficiency. But if you bring in more resilience thinking, it's saying, well, shocks can happen to the system. And you are trying to map, kind of visualize what those shocks might be. But there's different ways to solve for those problems from, you know, a local context. And there, you need to have that space where some of the shock might happen at a very local, maybe it just happens at a factory level. 
And then there could be shocks that happen to an entire supply chain for whatever reason. And there's shocks that would just happen like COVID-19. It's a global, you know, pandemic. It's affected everyone. But there's a different mindset that you kind of need to bring in, that you need to recognize that there are different, almost like uh, temporal and spatial uh, dimensions to our world that you need to kind of visualize and map. And resilience thinking and, and that mindset is, you know, sustainability and how you drive this. It's a complex way. And I think there's a lot of psychologists out there would say that humans are really bad at complex thinking. You talk about the efficiency and resilience saying somehow, somewhere, or at some point, there is a conflict between, as I understood, a conflict between efficiency and uh, resilience. So it reminded me a book I read, which is uh, Anti-Fragile, written by Nassim. Anti-Fragile doesn't mean strong. As I understood, it's actually resilience. It's the opposite set about uh, being fragile. So after reading this book, I just had to imagine a scenario. Efficiency means to go somewhere by the shortest route uh, using the, the least time. So when the shock comes, the whole thing will shut down because there's no other options. And in a resilient system, or in an anti-fragile way, you would prepare option A, B, C, plan A, B, C to switch. So when the shock comes, you will automatically switch, I hope, from option A to option B to option C and so on and so on and so on. But when everything works very fine, the system is not efficient because at each K point, the system needs to make a choice. I go A or I go B or I go C. Only by allowing this kind of uh, rundance, let's say, the system can have a potential ability to deal with a shocking or black swan or unexpected situation like a pandemic. So if we run after efficiency too much, we will lose all this buffering, all these extra spaces. Then when shocking happens, then the whole system just shut down. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love that analogy. Yeah. It makes it really easy to, to conceptualize. So if we take that to the fashion industry and what sustainability might look like in the fashion industry, I mean, Matthew, what do you think? Is it is it about decentralizing? Is it about, you know, setting policies at the top, but leaving more freedom? How do you, yeah, what does so that look like? I think you need to have space at every level for sustainability, innovation, and thinking. And um, you know, I, I, I'll just kind of, I guess I'll just take my approach. Um, and I've, I've used this at our, you know, in my current role in, in the manufacturer and, you know, in my previous role is I, I kind of see where, I, where I'm at. I'm not exactly on the ground level in my position. So I try to set guidance and guidelines. So, you know, policies or, or targets. But a policy is just kind of setting, well, here's your goal. And I'm not being very prescriptive in how you might go from, you know, where you are at to achieve that goal. And I don't really, a lot of times I get, you know, I, I, I used to, you know, now I get asked by my factories and, and before, 
you know, I got asked by our supply chain or manufacturing partners when I was working for the brand, like, well, what is it exactly, exactly you want us to do? And I said, well, I have this goal. I don't care how you meet it. I want you, like, like I've set a goal. Can you give an example? Uh, I mean, I mean, it's very, uh, you know, simple in, in a way where I just say that, you know, uh, let's say our factories are right now, I'm, I'm going to set a greenhouse gas savings uh, target or a water savings target. Or what we do is um, changing our waste disposal method. So like zero waste to landfill or incineration. But then they, you know, the question comes is, well, how exactly do you expect me to achieve that? And I say, well, that's up to you to decide. Because you know you're like you are closer to the manufacturing process, the everyday ins and outs of the factory and how it works, that you need to kind of be creative about it. You know, I'm trying to teach myself this this other mindset is called like design thinking, and mm-hmm. that's really kind of coming from the approach that I don't know the solution. Because I don't necessarily, I I have ideas about what the solution could be, but then that becomes a very prescriptive approach and then no one really learns anything in the process. So a design thinking mindset tries to ask, it's more of like Socratic in a way. It, it, It asks those probing questions to the factory to try to come to the decisions and the choices that they have on their own. Because it, it helps them take a little bit more ownership of you know what they're trying to achieve, uh, and when it, it you know people own what you know the work that they're doing, it, it kind of gives them that little bit more of that agency, and so they take one they take maybe a little bit more you know pride in, in, in trying to achieve it, but they also take it a little bit more seriously. So uh, you know for for the factor, and I say. What I'm asking you for to hit the greenhouse gas emissions target, just come back with some actions. Think about what kind of actions are you going to do that could help reduce, um, you know, your energy at, at this point, become more efficient in energy, or what, and just come back to it. And we'll have a we'll have a discussion about it. You know, I have, and I think most of the times our factories right now are very are quite advanced because we've been doing this for so long that they kind of get it, they kind of know. And I don't really need to do so much prodding, but we've recently done more of an exercise on uh, trying to figure out our domestic waste uh, and trying to piece that out because some of that is is we're not doing a good job separating it. Uh, to some extent, and at some of our factories, and we can do a better job. But to be able to kind of really do that, you need to kind of go through that mindset of really understanding where that waste is coming from, um, uh, its sources, and really break it down by each piece and say, well, what can we do about this? And so right. it's it's really, it's it's getting down in the details, but the overall goal is just, we don't want to send waste to landfill. But now we have, but it, under that, you have a tons of different options you know you could uh, eliminate the, some of the waste by implementing some solutions you can separate it out and maybe send for recycling you could uh, you know identify you know make sure that the food is taken out and that can go to composting or farms or you know so there's a lot of different solutions and, and like I said I'm coming out with like th- these are some of the solutions but I don't want to necessarily define that for my factory. 
it's so interesting too, because now you're talking about it mostly within the context of environmental initiatives, but I think it applies to social initiatives. For example, as a factory manager, I led the SA8000 certification process for the facility that I was managing. And I had conversations with auditors about things that were really prescriptive. I like that word that you use, prescriptive, that were imposed in a really top-down kind of way and didn't really add value to what we were doing. For example, you know, one of the discussions we had or one of the things that they that auditors look at when they come for the SA8000 certification is your emergency evacuation procedure and also whether you've practiced it. And you have to bear in mind, we're in Phnom Penh, we're in a city where there's not a lot of space, not a lot of land. And so the first discussion we had was that our evacuation point outside the building was on this small alleyway kind of nearby our nearby our factory. And the alleyway wasn't used by through traffic, and it wasn't even really big enough to fit cars. So it was really used kind of by mostly by pedestrian traffic and occasionally some some motorbike, mo- not even motorbikes, like scooter traffic. And um, the auditor was like, well, you know, you need to invest in roadblocks to block off this alleyway during your during your evacuation procedures so that you can ensure the safety of your staff during these exercises, etc. But if you have spent any time in Cambodia, you would know that nobody, even if we were to put roadblocks there, nobody would pay any attention to them whatsoever. So it's like there's two levels to this. On the one hand, you know, as factory manager, I didn't perceive this to be a situation that was really putting my staff at risk. Number two, I didn't see that the solution that they were proposing was, you know, in any way going to mitigate whatever small risk there might have actually been. At the same time, it was like, so then we had to spend, you know, $100, which in Cambodia is a lot of money. I mean, it's it's about, you know, half of someone's salary based on the minimum wage. And we had to spend to, to buy these to buy these roadblocks and it just was it was a tick box exercise. I don't think it really like, you know, made our workers any more or less safe during our emergency evacuation drills. But I think it just goes to show like, you know, could you could you give could you give more space for if you set, like you say, you set the goal or what's the spirit or the intent and then leaving people more freedom to figure out how to do it. But it requires trust. And that's, I think, one of the challenges is that there's such an absence of trust. And that's something that we've heard also over and over again. And Jessie, especially, I think, is, has had a front row seat to that in some of her experiences. So I don't know. What do you think, Jessie? Well, just thinking the design thinking, as uh, Mathieu mentioned just now, really requires lots of trust. Basically, when you use design thinking to, um, okay, the current way of doing those environmental sustainability practice or social practice, as Kim, you mentioned, is more like from top to the bottom, right? Either from the top of the supply chain to the bottom of the supply chain, either from the top management to the the, the bottom of the the management or the bottom or the team who will do it. But design thinking 
actually deliver the power, at least a part of the power, to the other part of the of the chain, of the working chain or working or team or supply chain, so that the other sides or other people could think about what fits their situation most. Or maybe they even don't need to think about what fits their situation most because what they come out must be something they can do and they want to do and they are willing to do. But yes. on the other side, design thinking really requires, for instance, your role to share some risks with uh, with other parties. Like they come out with some solutions uh, you have responsibilities to um, to decide, basically. These practices are good or not good enough or what to improve. So this is a share, shared risks. But I, I really like what Mathieu said in the first part. This is called uh, taking back the ownership of this part of the supply chain. Uh, yeah, a, a little bit. And, you know, and I guess we'll go back to like the example for, like when I was working on the brand side. I'll just say that I, that I came up with an idea for trying to flip this audit kind of mentality that we had to try to lead our manufacturer rather than like implementing an environmental audit on our manufacturers. And we had some like, you know, just environmental compliance, you know, just do you comply with, you know, the law basically. And, and the law is the law. Um, and so, uh, but the other, the, the question was, you know, well, do we need to do something more? Because a lot of other brands were, had these much more expansive environmental audits and talking and really diving into details of water management and how you're supposed to go about doing that and how you're going to have meters, uh, you know, in, in XYZ places of the factory or, or have requiring, you know, this many or having, you know, a wastewater, you know, uh, you know, treatment to a certain level without taking into consideration, say, the product that was being made um, and the challenges of maybe trying to reach that uh, level versus kind of having like a, a conversation with the, with the manufacturer on, you know, at, at how to do something different with the product. But the idea here was try to lead the manufacturers through a self-assessment through them doing their own, inviting their own third party, hiring an, their own third party to evaluate themselves. And so this kind of goes to the method, you know, my current company, my previous company, we were members of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition. Both companies have adopted the Hague Index. But what I was always trying to, in the Hague Index, is like this uh, suite of tools, and we can probably have an aside about that but later but it's in a self-assessment uh framework for you know manufacturers for brands um even for products to kind of evaluate their sustainability impacts but the idea was to really roll this out and try to get manufacturers more jazzed about well just learn about sustainability how can this tool which kind of leads you through a sustainability pathway of kind of like this basic environmental management system to setting targets, to evaluating how you perform and achieve against those targets, um, uh, I thought was a very powerful framework. Um, but a lot of times brands will just say, well, we're just going to audit to that and you have to do that versus kind of saying, well, you know, they, so the brand hires the third party versus, you know, the manufacturer hiring the third party to learn more. And right. so I, and so what I w was trying to encourage and trying to, to create like more of a scorecard was 
the manufacturer gets points for just completing the self-assessment. And then we can have a conversation about that self-assessment. And then they get, you know, uh, additional points if, you know, they've started to set targets and start thinking about, you know, moving along this pathway towards, you know, improvement. And then you get more points, say, if you invite in a third party to validate your, your, your target setting and your management system. So it gives, the, and so obviously, you know, I wanted to be like, then we can, you know, have more of like uh, a conversation that, well, these are the progressive manufacturers who are really, you know, thinking about sustainability and trying to encourage that thinking. Um, but in the end, that was actually shot down by the brand um, because too they much wanted, risk. yeah, it's too much risk. They wanted yeah. an environmental audit and and in the end it was funny the co- like the end of, the conversation ended up being about cost so the cost was what so it was like okay so you have this method where you're going to tell the manufacturers that they have to pay for the third party audit well that cost is still going to come back to me because they're just going to run up the price on me and i said well you don't know uh... that you don't actually know that because if they get cost savings they could just keep the price at the same point. That's true. Right? So there could be a win-win. But I said, well, the other way is we can just go to a third party and we can define what that cost is going to be. What I mean is like we can go to a third-party audit and hire a third-party audit who's going to cost you know millions of dollars to roll out an environmental audit to all of our suppliers. And now you have a, a, a specific dollar amount in front of you versus, well... The other way, you don't have a specific dollar amount in front of you, but you are changing the conversation with your suppliers and trying to encourage them to uh, adapt and grow, you know, and just saying that we have a goal of sustainability. We'd like you to come on this journey with sustainability with us and let the manufacturers choose whether that's a right path for them to pursue with us so in terms of like if we were to zoom out and look at how we approach sustainability as an industry maybe what you're tell me if i got it right but i think what you're proposing is you know responsibility for setting the goals maybe sits with the brands but responsibility for figuring out how to get there maybe sits further down and a sort of precondition or an enabling condition to being able to operate that way is trust and willingness to take on some risk. And so, which then comes back to the question, which I feel like is the question it always comes back to, which is like, how do we get that trust? How do we, you know, it's such a nebulous concept. And I'm I advocate for trust all the time and people are like, yeah, but what does that mean? And I try and come up with specific examples like, well, you know, um, I think a lot of it has to do with distribution of risk and reward and the way that uh, one way that you could get, get trust, at least get supplier trust is by reforming purchasing practices because that sort of signals a very you know, strong commitment to the way that you want to treat and engage with your supply chain. Mm-hmm. Um, but what do you think? <laughs> I mean, we, we talk about this, I like ideal of, you know, we've talked about it before is about like, you know, equal partnership 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think where I'm advocating is more like shared responsibility. And I think, but as you say, that shared responsibility indicates trust. Mm-hmm. And that, I guess in my mind, maybe I'm just naive and I'm a trusting person, but <laughs> I feel like the more trust you give, the more trust you get back. Mm-hmm. So it it's almost like you need a, a like a first kind of mover just to say I'm going to trust. And I, I I agree. I think purchasing practices come down to it because what we've done in this kind of specialization or you know world is you know we just drive for the cost aspect, which then and I wish. I wish, if anything, we could have more humanity in those relationships, and and rather than just driving on this economic principles, which puts us, which removes the agency from a lot of our of who we are. Yeah, I think about it a lot in terms of purchasing practices, but also standard operating procedures, and whether I think brands. I mean, my personal view is that brands have a. I mean, a lot of most standard operating procedures that I've come across are designed to, and standard operating procedures basically govern how decisions get made within a brand. And they're designed to kind of write the risk out of, <laughs> uh, or or to, to sort of pass the risk on to someone else to reduce the brand's liabilities. That's sort of like the the, the goal sometimes. And then I think maybe we need to do a review of those because I think employees are then often not really empowered employees. I've come across employees within brands who are like, well, I don't want to do it this way, but this is what the, this is what my procedure tells me I need to, the decision I need to make. And then they're not really empowered to make a call that makes sense within a certain context. And that then maybe also results in a bit of a of a fairer distribution of risk and reward. I just got a question for both of you actually, because Matteo, you were talking about uh, how to get more trust. We're talking about how to get more trust in supply chain, and Matteo, you are saying who uh, will be the initiative mover, who will be the first mover, right, to give more trust, and mm. you believe personally, you believe you give more trust, you will gain more trust. Then, very practically, I'm thinking <laughs> we're in the market. So what, what does market reward? Does market reward um, a, behave, uh, mm-hmm. a mentality, let's say? Does the current market reward a mentality like I trust more, I get more trust back, reward this kind of mentality? Or does market reward another mentality, which is cost effectiveness? Mm-hmm. I don't care about the trust. As long as my risks are maximally uh, you know, sorted out and I get lower cost, I sell higher, then the market will reward me. So I think what kind of a market are we in? If we are in the second market, I guess no one eventually will give more trust because you die very quickly, you know. <laughs> but if we are in the first market, I think gradually you will have more and more people are willing to give trust because you, I don't know, you're winning in the long, long term, I guess. So what kind of market are we in? But maybe even if we're in the second market, 
right? It's we have to look at power, right? And who has who has the power to shape what that market looks like? And that comes back to what Matthew says, which is who who needs to make the first move? And I would argue it's those with the most power because those with the most power have the ability to kind of if we're in the first scenario that you just described, maybe shift it a little bit to the second scenario. And um and 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 that what we maybe need to be asking of brands is to say, well, you you guys are the ones with quite a bit of influence in shaping how this industry works and you hold a lot of the chips. So you guys, it's up to you to make the first move. And maybe in doing so, we make the transition from the first scenario to the second scenario, at least a little bit. Ah, in that case, I will bet on <laughs> end consumers. I would say, I think the power is on the end consumers. The only obstacle, let's say, is uh, um, and the consumers can only work as groups. They have the greatest power. If and the consumers act as individuals, they, they actually don't have power. They often, you know, get uh, tricked or trapped. So I would say education to end consumers maybe is the key that eventually the market can shift to a more <laughs> more trust than gain more trust than, uh, you know, that kind of positive spiral. I don't know. Well, I think we're missing trust in a lot of different areas. You know, consumers, you know, there seems to be a lack of trust with, with the brands and then that mm -hmm. leads the brands to then not trust their supply chain. And it's kind of like this vicious circle. I mean, you talked about that the brands need to, you know, make be like the first mover uh, on it. And I'm just, I'm just wondering if that, if that goes back to our, our earlier conversation where we're talking about, you know, the brands want to control the narrative, but if they end up being the, mm -hmm. I think, I feel like brands are trying to be like a first mover, but they're, they, their focus is, I think people can go back and listen to your previous pod podcast, but I think, <laughs> but I think their focus is misplaced a little bit because they're not necessarily really evaluating internally, mm -hmm. um, you know, their own practices and, and how, and, and what they're doing in the supply chain. They just want to talk about, well, the, um, how we're, we're, how we're taking ownership or reducing impacts and we're trying to build partnerships with our suppliers on sustainability, mm -hmm. but have they really looked at partnership on the other side as well, which then leads me to think, well, you know, Right now, you know, brands, if they control the narrative, why can't manufacturers, um, and I feel like there's some type of, you know, there maybe there's commercial agreements where, you know, we can't publicly state who are, who, you know, our customers mm, are yeah. sometimes, but why couldn't we? Like, why, like, I think in our previous, in your previous podcast, we talked about, you know, publishing the supplier list. And I think that mm -hmm. still helps the brands control the narrative versus why can't I publish who all my customers are. Right. You know, right. and say the, like we, like, like, just, we have our own sustainability report. We are reducing uh, our carbon emissions by this amount. Uh, you know, we have these, you know, programs in place. These are things that we're doing. And by the way, these are the responsible brands that have chosen to work with us. <laughs> I love that. I love it. It's revolutionary. Oh, I, I wish it comes true quickly, I, not too late. <laughs> I, so, yeah, I wish it was true too. 
We've covered a lot of ground and we've kind of jumped around a bit, but maybe a nice way to close this is just to leave it totally open. Matthew, if you could, if you could wish for some one thing to make the fashion industry more sustainable, what would it be? Uh, I think it's hard to say what would make, you know, just the fashion industry more sustainable you know, of in of itself, I I think part of me just goes back to people. I, I feel like it just it's not just consumers and brands and you know manufacturers. You know, one is you know, we obviously talk about trust. And I wish there was a little bit more trust in in the industry. I wish there was a easier way to speak about sustainability that's less jargony. Um, mm -hmm. we, we talk and so, and there's so much jargon that we've just used in this podcast and that's out mm -hmm. my reflection on this. And it's because we work in this area of specialization that you people are like, oh, sustainability is a specialization. So I guess my ultimate wish is sustainability is no longer a specialization, but a generalist general knowledge. Um, mm -hmm which I, I I think it's just, a, it's, it's a mindset um, of just kind of having a vision of a, of a future where humans are thriving on, on this planet, but understanding everything that as much as possible, we're never, maybe we'll, we'll never understand everything, but as much as possible, understanding what that really takes. And that means, you know, having compassion between humans and recognizing that everything in the our economies are built are, are there's so many there's humans in that economy. It's it's all about so having humanity there and you know, being able to take care of people who, you know, as the conscious more like highest level of maybe conscious beings on this planet, that we have a responsibility as well to you know, ensure the environment that we live in is actually suitable for our inhabitant on this planet as well. Um, and I think that's, that's, I think that's my, my wish, um, which, yeah, I'm a dreamer and idealist. So sue me. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. You wish sustainability can be a common sense, a implanted common sense and a background of our rational thinking and uh, the mentality and the mindset that most people will naturally adapt to it. That's a very beautiful well wish. Yeah. That's well put. <laughs> yeah. And maybe a perfect, perfect perfect way to end the, to wrap this conversation up i think it it leaves it 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 opens so much i think space for the imagination to think about where we could go which is a nice place to be because so often in this line of work it can get pretty dark <laughs> and pretty depressing yeah yeah more imagination i love it thank you for listening to manufactured to learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, check out our website, manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. 
We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. Leave comments on Instagram or connect with us privately through our website. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show, and we'd love your help with that. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. Oh, oh, oh.